Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone who's looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 14, I have my first international guest in the form of Harry Weatherstone. Harry Weatherstone is the founder of the Youth Athletic Development Academy in the Sunshine Coast, Australia, and I first came across his work on Instagram. On today's podcast, we discuss his thoughts on why there has been such a dramatic increase in knee injuries over the past 15 years in Australia. We talk about coaching considerations when dealing with kids as young as five years old. We talk about developing a growth mindset with children and youth athletes. Uh, We speak about how Harry goes about developing rhythm, balance and body awareness in his youth athletes. And finally, we talk about Harry's key resources for strength and conditioning coaches. I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get into it. Hey, Harry, how are you doing today, mate? Hey, Todd. Yeah, great. Thanks. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. Um, So you're joining us from the Sunshine Coast in Australia and first international guest on the podcast. So thank you very much. Um, First question is, uh, well, actually, I'll tell you what, if you start with an introduction to yourself and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so I've um, so I'm a youth strength and conditioning coach here in uh, here in Australia. Um, I've uh, created a business around this called the uh, Youth Athletic Development Academy, and through this, I deal with uh, deal with a wide variety of of people from five year olds looking to need, looking to improve their physical development and their physical literacy, all the way through to uh, youth athletes looking to improve their performance and uh, stay injury free and just remain in their peak peak level. And on this on the subject of physical literacy, uh, one of the traps I find myself falling down is uh, I'll get used to speaking with SNC coaches and I'll throw out terms such as physical literacy, um, but then I'll forget when I'm talking to parents that what their idea of physical literacy is and what my idea is, there might be two different things. So for listeners who might be parents or sport coaches or might have their own definition, how do you define physical literacy? Yeah, so I guess my definition of physical literacy is just having the having the capacity and the confidence to move in a way that helps helps you with your sporting activities like your kicking, um, hitting, tumbling, um, striking the ball, anything anything to do with that. So it's a, it's quite a broad term, but uh, yeah, encompasses a lot. And perfect. And have you always worked with youth athletes, or is that something you've fallen into? Yeah. So. Always worked with youth athletes. I initially started working with youth athletes as a uh, tennis coach. So spent a lot of time through from the teenage years through university and even up to a little bit now uh, working with uh, youth tennis players. And yeah, this was a relatively relatively easy process to move into the, the strength and conditioning space, dealing with the same same demographic. And just a more specific question on the uh, tennis, obviously, you play, you played yourself and you said off air that you had a decision where you could have got uh, could have gone to the states and chose to remain in australia how much of your uh snc coaching if you will how much of that was done on court versus in a gym yeah initially it was a lot of it was based on court uh whether that was 15 minutes before a training session done as um as a warm up 
or or during a session or after a session, just getting in whatever work I could, and then slowly transitioned into into the gym facilities when I when I had that available to myself. And what are some of the common mistakes that you see? What are some of the common mistakes you see with tennis athletes and their SNC, whether it's looking back on your own career or whether it's with some of the youngsters you first started working with? I think the biggest mistake is just not taking it seriously. Um, there's not a massive culture, at least in the youth setting around tennis and strength and conditioning here in Australia. Um, yeah, so I'd say that's probably the number one number one thing. And that was definitely my mistake as well. Um, I didn't do a lot of strength and conditioning work as a kid and I definitely, I definitely paid for that later on with a string of injuries and uh, unreached potential, I guess. And in, it's funny you say in regards to not taking it seriously because uh, one of my previous podcast guests, uh, Daz Drake, who works predominantly in tennis, he spoke about his physical model, his technical model, and he said before even diving into any of that, he'll ask his coaches whether the player was actually trying their hardest because obviously all of that is irrelevant if your player isn't putting in 100%. So my next question is, when it comes to the developing psychosocial skills in kids and sort of that battle hardiness of trying, how do you factor that into your planning of your sessions or how you coach your sessions? Yeah, so I like to, I like to create a lot of challenges in my sessions to help develop this. Um, I like the I like athletes to get that sense of accomplishment that they feel when they when they achieve a task or when they uh, do something that they may have previously not been able to do. And I get another aspect of this would probably be um, would be in the uh, would be in the academy challenges that I've created as well. So these academy challenges help to build. Uh, build the skills that we've worked on throughout the term and throughout the training block uh, to help these athletes get better and to build this growth mindset around their training. So my, my next question on the, on the subject of the challenges is, firstly, can you give an example of these? Because I've seen some brilliant ones that I've stolen from you on, uh, on Instagram. But just give an example of what these challenges are. And then my second question is, um, how do you frame failure when a kid can't do a challenge? Because obviously it's almost become common in sport where we lower the bar so far that every kid can jump over it. Every kid gets a medal, but then the kids know it's meaningless. So what are the challenges? How do you frame and how do you frame failure? Yeah. So one of, one of the challenges I've done is one of my favorite ones is probably a one minute skipping challenge. Uh, the reason why this is probably one of my favorites is if there's a low barrier to entry in it, most kids can skip. And if kids can't skip, they can learn to skip. And setting this challenge for kids to improve on day to day, week to week is key. And um, yeah, I found, I found the kids really get into this, especially when there's that lower barrier to entry where kids may not feel that fear to, to give it a go. And yeah, a great example of this is, yeah, I had a, I had a kid who barely could string together any skips and from setting this challenge he probably gave gave it 50 odd attempts he was in there most days just digging away at it trying to get better with his skipping and obviously he improved a lot throughout the time and that that's exactly what I want to see so with regards to the failure you you may be able to not do it today but 
I like to put that growth mindset in that if you want to keep working at it, um, you will be able to improve and get better. Yeah, and I think that's a key point that it's easy for kids to be like, oh, well, I'm not as good as so-and-so or compared to everyone, I'm down here. But it's not, it's not the actual challenge per se. Like it's not necessarily the art of learning how to skip. It's the idea of forcing yourself to commit the time to then go and get better rather than the actual you know, skipping or even though it has its benefits, it's that rather than whatever the specific challenge is in itself. So have you, you found the responses to be fairly positive on the whole for the, from the kids then? Yeah, 100%. The, um, the kids have loved it. And um, for me, it just it gives me a bit of an insight into where their minds are at as well. Um, I, I, get, I get an insight as to whether the athlete is, um, has got the mindset where they can't do it and then they give up or maybe they can't initially do it and they keep going or maybe they even excel at it. And they're just going to give it one attempt and um, see how they go with that, which is obviously not ideal as well. So one of the um, one of the things I've learned most from working in a school and working alongside PE teachers over the past two years is being able to differentiate tasks relative to the uh, obviously the people doing it. Now, obviously, in SNC, we think we do this all the time in terms of progression and regression. So my next question is, how does let's say you've got an idea of an athlete's mindset from these challenges. How does that then influence your programming going forward? Yeah. So I guess it, it creates a bit of a flaw from where, where I can build on. So if, if I know someone struggles with that growth mindset, I'm going to, I may set some challenges a little bit lower. I'm going to build some confidence in that athlete, give them the skills that they need to and, possibly spend a little bit more time working on the skills, making sure it's refined. And then, then from there, I can, I can set challenges that I know they can complete and then challenges that will start to challenge them a little bit more. And then from there, they, they see that, that change in their mindset. And um, yeah, it's a great, great realization to see actually. Yeah. And I think that's one of the more enjoyable things about coaching. Obviously it's nice to see someone have a massive broad jump or be, uh, really reactive off the floor but it's seeing kids who go from not being able to do something to having a huge smile on the face when they put the time and effort to doing something they previously couldn't do like that is where the money is yeah 100 percent. we we spoke off air about the uh obviously myself being lucky enough to go to wimbledon a, few, a couple of weeks ago and you said about how amazing it was that the top three just keep getting better how do you instill these this sort of attitude towards wanting to get better within the youth athletes that you work with? Yeah, it's tough. It's, um, it's something that in a lot of cases it's, it's innate within, within them. So these top three players with, uh, with Federer, Djokovic and Nadal, um, they're hungry. They, they want more and um, they've got that belief as well. And they're also, they're also there helping to push each other to help them raise the bar. So, that's something I like to create as well as I, I like to tell the athletes that you need to surround yourself with, with other athletes that can help push you in the direction that you need to go. And on, on top of that as well, it's about creating that, that team around you as well to help, to help drive you, whether that's your, your coaches or your parents or, or the other staff around you. And in regards to that sort of team around you, how do you go about, um, so I've got 
uh, one of your posts uh, in front of me, it said that Australians, there was a 70% increase in injuries requiring knee reconstruction in the past 15 years. So before I get into the second part of the question I had, why do you think there's been such a huge increase? Is it just because we're understanding and we're profiling and recording these injuries better or is there something more to it? Yeah, it's tough to say. I'm sure there's there's multiple factors that are uh, that are going into this, but at the end of the day, I think I think it comes down to a, an early specialization um, factor, um, especially because the the most alarming thing about that study was the fact that the highest rate of incidence were these children amongst um, were between five and fourteen years of age, and I think the main driving factor behind that definitely is that early sports specialization. And also, on top of that, it's the lack of the lack of training that these kids are getting in um, in their grassroots and club level. Uh, when I say training, I mean their strength and conditioning coaching around their their neuromuscular strength and proprioception and motor control. And going back to uh, what I mentioned about uh, physical literacy, how do you, how do you define stuff like neuromuscular control or proprioception? What does that What does that mean to the layperson? Yeah, so just that connection between what your brain is trying to get your muscles to to do and connecting connecting. So if I say move my right arm here, my right arm's going to move there, or push hips back, or anything like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember, and obviously, I'm sure you've experienced the same when you get athletes from, for example, movement based sports like gymnastics or dance. You tell them one thing, and boom, they can do it. And I remember working with, and this isn't meant to stereotype, but I remember working with a group of young rowers and trying to teach them hip hinge. And I was like, right, hips back. Yeah. No, that's, that's <laughs> your knees, hips back. Yeah. Touch your bum to the wall. Um, how do you go about dealing, uh, sorry, to phrase the question better, obviously there's a lot of stuff out there about early specialization, what we can do to combat it. So my question is, if a kid comes to you, let's say specifically on the premise that they want to be coached tennis. Obviously you can't dedicate an entire hour of tennis coaching towards S and C cause that's not what they came to see you for. So how do you get that S and C in there while still keeping a good balance of what they paid you to come and see you for, if that makes sense? Yeah. So you're talking about my experiences as a tennis coach. So if I'm running a tennis lesson, is that, is that, yep, yep, is that perfect. where he's coming that's, from? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So the warm-ups, warm-ups are a great, great way to do this and you don't need a lot of time as well. Um, you can take 10 minutes of the session to, to run through some specific exercises that are going to help kids learn how to move and build strength and build their athletic foundation. And if you're doing, if you're doing a warm-up with a kid three times a week, maybe for three training sessions, that, that 10 minutes is that's 30 minutes a week and that 30 minutes a week adds up throughout the years. And while it's, while you would like to get kids in for more time, um, that 10 minutes is better than anything else. So let's say you have a, let's say, or actually what, what age kids did you work with firstly when you were doing just your tennis coaching? Um, yeah, every age spectrum, every five age. years through till yeah, 18, 20. Okay, perfect. So, let's say a kid comes to you at five and they happen to be really committed. So they'll be with you from, let's say for the sake of a round number from five to 20, obviously the warm ups are a great use of time in terms of disguising in uh, movement skill and strength. 
and uh, getting them to move the way that they should move. So what would a warm up look like for say, let's say a five year old. So a kid who is definitely prepubescent and perhaps doesn't have the ability to take on larger instructions. So let's say five versus, I don't know, a little bit older, 12. And then after puberty, what would those warm ups or what would your thought processes look like to those warm ups for a really young child um, to pre puberty to post puberty? Yeah, so it, I guess it's all it's all the same thing, just working along a different a different continuum. So at the bottom of the continuum, you've got your the five year old who obviously has does not have much of an attention span, doesn't want to be doing any specific drills and hearing a thousand different cues. For that kid, it's all about just getting them to move, um, whether that is through um, through different movements like crawling or passing or kicking or just getting some different kind of stimuluses into them um, because if they're playing a lot of tennis um, they're not getting a lot of other different uh, activities in so building that wide wide kind of movement literacy is important and then moving into the 12 year olds you can start adding in some different movements such as you might start working on some push-ups or some other fundamental uh, movement skills such as squatting or pushing up or rowing and such and then moving into the later years you might start to incorporate uh, more specific exercises around dealing with uh, different stability and mobility around joints and then obviously you will still work in some games because it's important to keep it fun throughout whether that's through agility or speed or different different team-based activities and I, I haven't written this down on my uh, podcast prep that I sent you, so uh, you can take a couple of minutes on this if you will. Um, so a post I saw a few weeks ago was of Roger Federer's warm up from basically from start to finish, um, yep. and it had a lot of interesting stuff around what I assume was targeting perceptual motor qualities. So, for example, uh, in it he was obviously using the racket and the ball, but then he was hitting. Uh, there was a football or a volleyball or something with another football um, and just differentiating the stimulus. Do you ever do anything to target the perceptual motor skills of the athletes you work with? Um, I, I do, but generally speaking, um, I will stick to, I will stick to the foundation. I'll stick to the basic principles and keeping things simple as well, especially when I deal with someone and they've only got very limited amount of time. Um, I will stick with a lot of the basics and getting those basics done well. And while, yeah, it's important to deal with those perceptual uh, skills, it's, um, it's something that comes along possibly later on in the development. And uh, going back to your, uh, going back to your S and C based sessions, you've got your mini movers to so your five to eight year olds and your kid fit group, uh, nine to 12 are these how different are these sessions in terms of how you coach structure and what you're trying to get out out of the kids from those sessions yeah so essentially there's um there's not too much difference as, as i spoke to about before there's a there's like a continuum that i'll that i'll go up and down depending on the age levels of the group um with the mini movers we'll work on skills and qualities around physical literacy and as we will do the same sorts of things with our uh, with our kid fit athletes, but we may start to incorporate different different movements around uh, fundamental skills like pushing up, 
and bracing the core and such and then then as well building in more specific exercises around exercises and games around reaction and speed and agility and going back to the going back to that uh, study that we mentioned um, a few minutes ago how do you or what role do you think load monitoring may have played in the uh, dramatic spike in knee injuries that Australia was seeing and the second part of the question is how do you communicate to parents and youth athletes about the importance of load monitoring while still trying to keep sport fun because I think a lot of time parents think oh you just want little Timmy not to play football or you know if that's the one sport they're interested in obviously they're going to do it but how do you strike the balance between yes I want your kid to enjoy sport but I also care about them and don't want them to get injured yeah 100% and that that load monitoring is is a massive factor and it goes hand in hand with the early sport specialization as being one of the one of the key factors to why that that um that 70 percent increase in acl injuries are, are there um so sorry what was the second part of that question as well the second part of the question is how do you communicate to parents and youth athletes about the importance of load monitoring and do it in such a way where they don't think you're just trying to simply restrict the amount of sport that their kid is playing yeah it just it just comes from that open communication and it, building that trust with the parents and the athlete as well is key. Um, if you don't have that trust from based on your previous experience with them, it's, it's very hard to communicate that with them, especially if they're a little bit apprehensive. So for me, it, I may not necessarily bring it up until I have, if I feel like they're not able to take the advice, if, if I haven't built the relationship with them first and built that trust. And in regards to, uh, obviously, when you do it in older athletes, it, it might be easier to say, right, here's a spreadsheet. I want you to log how long you play the sport for, how intense it is. And then obviously you can spit out metrics and get them. You can be a bit more specific and say, right, you've done X amount last week. So therefore, you're not going to do more than this and you're not going to do less than this. How does that work in a youth athlete setup where cognitively the kids may not be as mature and obviously parents have got a million other one things concerning them. How do you try and do, go down that official route or do you, do you give general prescriptions in terms of, right, if you train X amount of times per week, have one day off or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it's so different with everyone I speak to. It's, um, I try not to, to make those, those kind of hard and fast rules about one training session equals such and such time away. But um, yeah, that's, it's definitely my number one hardest thing to deal with is getting these kids to, to recover from their training and to recover effectively. And that education around making sure that they're doing the right things in regards to their, their big rocks of recovery, whether that be your nutrition, uh, hydration or sleep. Um, so yeah. And one of the things one of the things you've written about previously is about the minimum effective dose so my first part of the question is for people who aren't familiar with the term uh, where does it come from and what does it mean yeah so the minimum effective dose for me is just um what stimulus can we give these athletes to give them the most effect without causing them any issues in their recovery and their their performance in their sport throughout the week. 
And the second part of that is, uh, what do you think are appropriate? And I know this will obviously change depending on the athlete, but what do you think are appropriate starting volumes? Let's say you get a kid in the gym and they've never lifted weights, but they move pretty well. So you decide, right, you've earned the right to use a little bit of weight. What are your sort of starting volumes or what is your minimum effective dose, if you like, for a kid that's just starting in the uh, strength and conditioning suite? Yeah, so most of the kids that I deal with, they're um, because of the nature of, of SMC here, they've, they've typically got a training age of zero. So, um, so we're starting right at the bottom. We're, we're building skills. I'm teaching kids how to move and typically this doesn't create too much of a, a fatigue effect and um, and from this I can I slowly build up in 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 all the typical different ways through weight and reps and and time and tempo and all of those things and and I, I remain that open communication with the athlete to see how they're responding to their training and how they're faring throughout the week and whether that's affecting what's going on throughout and there's something I'm finding, and maybe it's just because obviously I've worked with kids a lot more recently. Um, but for example, in the two years I've been at a school, like I remember doing a set of walking lunges just as part of a warm up. And then the next day, the pupils were saying to me, Oh, my legs are really sore from what we did yesterday. And I was thinking, What, the warm up? And <laughs> do, have you found in the years you've been working with youth athletes that there's been a either a decline in physical literacy or, um, kids are being even less exposed to it? Yeah, I find, I find they are getting less exposed to it. Um, and I think, I think that comes down to the, the focus on the skills of their sport. Um, kids are getting, um, kids aren't spending the time on that development. And yeah, you do find kids who, who you think would uh, respond relatively well to a, to a program, but then come back um, obviously very sore and and feeling that session the next day and in regards to the minimum effective dose you said obviously about your work as a tennis coach um are, are there other tennis coaches at the school that you're associated with yeah yeah a handful perfect so my next question is uh, obviously you've got your minimum effective dose uh in the gym and you can quite easily even though it's a theoretical concept you could quite easily apply it to for example how much time you spend on the court, how intense the sessions need to be. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you've tried to influence what other tennis coaches are doing with their athletes at the school in terms of how much volume or intensity that they're giving a certain pupil? Or do you try and stay out of that and just say, look, I'm not coaching the athlete. It's not my concern, if that makes sense. No, I'm, I'm quite lucky where I am that um, a, lot of the, a lot of the coaches that I deal with are... Um, are very receptive to all of this and they've um they've got great buy-in with the with the program that i run and and belief in in the systems um so yeah that that's good on that side that does make life a lot easier for me and of course the athlete gets the benefit of that as well but again that that comes down to building that trust with the with the coaches so i've had the benefit of of working with the tennis coaches there for a for a handful of years and and integrating the program through them and uh yeah, so luckily that that integrative approach there has, has really helped really helped the athletes out in helping them to not only perform better but on the on the injury side of things with uh, dealing with the loads. 
and I suppose it, it I suppose it helps the athletes massively if obviously what's being preached on court is being preached in the gym and everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet. Yeah, 100%. And with uh, in terms of building trust, do you think in terms of the mistakes that SNC coaches make, you've obviously said that you were lucky enough you were in the tennis team before, the kids probably knew you, the tennis coaches knew yeah. you, obviously the school knew you. How how often do you think SNC coaches make the mistake of almost trying to bulldoze their way into an organisation and, you know, dare I say it, almost trying to go too hard with the relationship too soon without being able to actually spend time to build that trust, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I, I think it's important to to be humble and just to realise the effect that the, the effect of us as strength and conditioning coaches of being on performance. And at the end of the day, we're a, we're a small piece of the puzzle compared to what they're doing in their, in their uh, sport training. So we need to realize our role and not, not think that um, we're above any, any sport coach or that our job is more important than others, because at the end of the day, it's not, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not, it's not anything more than that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And in my younger days as an SNC coach, for me, every limitation that led to a, a flaw in somebody's sport, it's like, oh, that's definitely physical. Oh, they're definitely not strong enough. And then like even silly yeah. things like yesterday, I had a kick about, um, had a kick about with my brother and uh, I play playing goal. And I don't know, I assume it's called soccer in Australia, but I potentially, yeah. Yeah, potentially exposing my lack of international knowledge. Um, but yeah, the, and I was obviously practicing diving and got nowhere near the ball. And I was like, well, in my, in my older S and C days, I've been like, oh, definitely a physical limitation, but then I'm like, I've not played the sport in years. So, and you know, yeah. from my powerlifting background, I'd like to think I'm quote unquote strong enough, whatever that means. Um, so that, that's yeah. why I asked the question about the perceptual skills earlier on, just because in my younger days, everything was a physical limitation and it's, you know, the strongest athlete, the quickest athlete will always be the best athlete, but we've all had yeah. athletes who tear it up in the gym and then you'd see them in their sport and they're actually not all that. Yeah. Well, that's it. Like jumping performance, sprinting performance, we, we test and we can see someone's fast or can jump high in the gym, but jumping looks different in basketball than it does. Uh, volleyball looks different than it does in soccer. It looks Jumping is very sport specific, and it's um, it's not it's hard to measure it in the gym and say, "Yep, that person's going to be able to perform out on the field or the court." And in regards to performing on the court, obviously, with your with your tennis uh, knowledge of having played the sport, uh, I'm assuming you've probably got a general or generic S and C testing battery. Um, do you try and watch the athlete on court and then either? match up their what you perceive to be a deficiency on the court and the physical limitation or you try and build that picture of right here's their physical limitations this is what we're seeing on the in the on the court here's how it might link up or do you try and just say right these are just some generic metrics this is what we're working on and dare I say almost try and keep the two try not to overstep your role if that makes sense yeah, so I think ideally that that would be great if I was able to if I was to take the time to be on the tennis court to analyze their movement and see what I feel like their limitations are and use that use that experience as 
a tennis coach and then transfer that over to the gym. But the the practicality of um, of being able to do that is difficult, and the limitations in time of not only not only the kids but the other the other coaches and myself. It's uh it's tough to do in in the real world, but ideally that would be that would be great. And going back to the on the subject of testing virus, I saw a saw a brilliant thing on Instagram where you were using a bike as a prowler, which I thought was just genius. Um, so <laughs> yeah, my, do my what next, you got to do. Exactly, exactly. It's one of my uh, favorite <laughs> inventions that I've seen. What does your I, I don't know exactly the facilities you've got available at your disposal, but what does your basic testing battery look like for youth athletes? Yeah, it's, it's fairly it's fairly simple. I, I like not to overcomplicate it. Um, that's definitely definitely a philosophy of mine, especially dealing with youth athletes, is to just make things simple. So um, I guess I, I've got two two sorts of, uh, of performance testing uh, batteries, I guess I use. Um, I've got one for my, my primary school kids where I'll deal a lot more with uh, the coordination and the, the physical literacy side of things. And I'll also, I'll also test their, their jumping and their running and things of such. But when we get into the high school one, I'll, I'll do a bit more movement assessment. I'll look into, um, into their global movement, such as possibly an overhead squat and a... Um, and a bird dog and assess that that mobility and stability around their joints as well as those other performance metrics. And with the with the coordination side of things, it's an area that I've become really interested of late, um, especially with younger kids, because I think, oh, just because an athlete it moves well and moves well enough to justify being loaded. So let's say, uh, I don't know, um, they squat well, so you think, right, great, give them a dumbbell, goblet squat. Um, but another thing I've been playing about with is different means of getting into that squatting position, whether it's, I don't know, forward roll into a squat or, you know, something more coordination based. Do you, how, how do you assess the coordination? Are you filming stuff? Are you just sort of noting stuff in a diary and noting the change over time? Cause I find coordination is a bit of a, dare I say a fuzzy term that some strength and conditioning coaches who like the numbers aren't so comfortable with. Yeah, it is, you're right. It is a fuzzy term, and it, coordination. It, it's not one. It's not one thing. It's it's the relationship between a whole lot of uh, physical physical skills, such as your your balance, your your rhythm, your timing, and the uh, the connection between hand eye hand foot coordination as well. That's it's not just one thing, and it's tough to define, but. I like to, in, when I'm testing for these things, I like to do a variety. I like to test, I like to test rhythm through skipping. Um, I'll test hand-eye coordination through a through a variety of different um, throwing activities, and then I'll also do uh, do balance testing as well. I like it, Mike. I was going to say the next the next place I was going with the questioning was going to be something about how you either assess rhythm or teach rhythm, because I find that a lot of kids they've uh, they've almost got two ends of the spectrum, but they've got like nothing in between. So if you say, mm-hmm. right, run as fast as you can, they'll, you know, sprint away. If you say move very slowly, they will, but they almost can't, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They can't find the in between. It's either yep. as, jump as fast or as far as possible, sprint as fast as they can or move very slowly and, you know, barely walk. 
Yeah, um, and you, you can play around with those tempos in all of those different tasks as well. So you can take a skipping challenge and you can tell them, all right, you've got 30 seconds to do 50 skips. And then I can give them a challenge to say, you've got 30 seconds to do 70 skips. And their goal for, for that is to figure out how close they can get to that number. And we can change the rhythms around as well. We can we can do juggling challenges where well, they'll be juggling at different rhythms, throwing balls at different times, uh, whether that's to a count or to a metronome or something like that. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Um, I find a, a lot of stuff that helps with, because for me, for example, loads of kids want to focus on how far they can jump or how far fast they can run. But as we were saying earlier, they don't necessarily want to focus on, should we say, the more basic or um, what they perceive to be boring, such as landings or running efficiently. So I find, you know, similar to what you said, rather than, for example, using an external cue of throwing a cone miles away and be like, right, try and reach the cone. Sometimes even pulling that back and be like, right, can you modify how much force you're putting into the ground to only jump this far? And yeah, almost constrains their landing without even thinking about it. And then they try and overexert themselves. And then, as you said, going back to the ACL study, you start to see all the discrepancies in movement efficiency that ironically probably lead to these issues later down the line if we don't fix them from the get-go. Yeah, 100%. And I had a, I had a great challenge for my mini-movers class this week that was along that line of um, yeah, setting, setting a cone a certain distance apart and having them having them shut their eyes, and I would I would tell them you've got to get as close to this cone in a certain number of jumps. And um, I found this to be a great great challenge to to test this and to develop. Do they? I I think I, I don't. You may have stolen it from the same place. You may have invented it yourself. Um, I saw Brett Clicker put something out like that a week or so ago. Did do they jump with their eyes? Do they jump with their eyes closed or? Yeah, look, I, I may have actually taken that from Brett. I do follow a lot of his stuff. Um, yes, they do have their eyes closed and they're jumping from one cone to the next. Is that similar to what Brett's done? Yeah, yeah, literally line alone, yeah. line alone of cones up. You've got five jumps, just try and get from here to here, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, must... I thought depending on, depending on which group you're, depending on the ability level of the group, sorry, you might have someone who's super springy who then has to sort of cut a bit off and equally exactly. you, you might have someone who is uh, relatively or has a zero training age, never been taught how to jump or land. And for them, that's five maximal jumps as far as possible. Yep. Um, and in regards to recommended resources, if you had to pick just one, whether it's a podcast, something online, YouTube, whatever, what would you go for? Yeah, so Brett Click is actually someone that I, I definitely would recommend for anyone dealing with um, anyone dealing with the pre-adolescent age group. Um, he puts out lots of great content on his website, so he's definitely someone that I've I've lent on quite a lot, especially with the development of these uh, the mini movers and kid fit programs. Um, as for podcasts, I, I do love podcasts, and I think I think Mike Robertson's podcast is great. Uh, I think it's called the Physical Physical Preparation Podcast. Yeah, I know he puts he puts out a lot of great uh, a lot of great uh, interviews with wide variety of of guests. So they'd probably be a couple I'd recommend. Awesome, and uh, having been lucky enough, or depending on what field you're in, unlucky enough to do three years worth of uh, internship work. I 
got a lot of experience working with different coaches. So my question is, if you could spend a period of time observing one coach and their athletes, who would you choose to observe and why? Yeah, so I've, I've been, when I was a young coach, I would follow a lot of Gary Schofield's work. Oh, um, I love Gary Schofield. So yeah, he's been doing a lot of great work over in the States with um, who previously was high school strength coach and uh, president of the National High School Strength and Conditioning Association. So he's someone I'd love to love to spend some time with. And obviously we've talked about Brett over the last couple of minutes. He'd be another another yeah. person I'd love to love to pick his brain on. Yeah, he's Gary Schofield's got a brilliant, I think it's something like training the high school athlete or something like that um, on YouTube. And the passion just yep. just literally flies flies off the video. Like you watch it and you think, right, let me find some youth athletes. Let me go and coach. Like he's brilliant. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and my last question is, how can people get in touch with you or find out more about the Youth Athlete Development Academy? Yeah, so personally, you can you can find me on on Instagram. My um my personal page there is coach underscore Harry W, or you can you can email me at uh, Harry at yadacademy.com. Um, if you want to find more information about the Youth Athletic Development Academy, you can uh, visit the website yadacademy.com, or you can just jump over to the Instagram page uh, at yadacademy. Perfect. And thank you very much for your time, Harry. As I said, first international guest on the Platform to Perform podcast. So thank you for mitigating the time difference. And it's been a pleasure to speak to you, mate. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, Todd, appreciate it. All the best, mate. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode 14 of the Platform to Perform podcast. Harry being one of hopefully many international guests to be interviewed as part of the podcast. If you want to get in touch with Harry, I will leave his details in the show notes. If you'd like to get in touch with myself, you can search Todd Davidson P2P Coaching on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Thank you very much for listening. Catch you in the next episode.